The Complete Norse Mythology, adapted by Kevin Crossley Holland, music by Mats Vent, read by Tom Harris. Part 8 Otter's Ransom Winter had lost its heart. Every day the stallions Arvac and Alsvid rose earlier to haul the sun's chariot across the sky, and quietly the snow pulled back from the valleys and plains of Midgard. Small choirs of birds sang, and Odin, Loki, and Honir were eager to leave Asgard and resume their exploration of the worlds. Early one morning the three gods crossed Bivrust, Talking and laughing, they spring-heeled into Midgard, and Odin and Loki had to stretch their legs to keep up with swift Honir. Suddenly, a late snowstorm assaulted the travelers. They shrugged their way through thick, wet flakes that tangled and danced and spun and flew in every direction, till that wild onslaught ended as abruptly as it had begun. The sun boomed through layers of shapeless cloud, filling it with fierce yellow light. And then there was only the orb of the sun, the expanding acres of pale blue sky, and the blue and green levels of open Midgard. The three gods followed the course of a river towards its head, and in the afternoon they walked up under a waterfall. They strode into the thunder through the spray diamonds and stared into the maelstrom. Then Odin spotted an otter stretched out on the scraggy bank not fifty paces from them. He pointed it out to Loki and Honir. The otter's eyes were shut. Feeling blessed and rather drowsy in the afternoon sun, it had just begun to eat a salmon and caught in the waterfall. Loki pursed his lips. He bent down and picked up a fist-sized stone, took aim and threw it as hard as he could at the otter. The stone hit the animal on the head and killed it outright. Well then, shouted Loki, struggling back to Odin and Honir with the salmon under one arm and the limp otter under the other. What do you say to that? Two for the price of one. The three companions were all equally delighted, Loki at his prowess, and Odin and Honir at the prospect of a good meal that evening. They climbed up the steep bank beside the waterfall and continued on their way up the narrowing river valley. The sun had already been drawn out of sight, and it was halfway to dark when the gods saw a farm only a little way ahead of them. Smoke lifted from its chimney. They quickened their step and gave thanks for their good fortune. Can you give us lodgings for the night? Odin asked the farmer, Hreidmar. We've no wish for a dew bed. How many are you? said Hreidmar. There are two others outside, Odin replied, and we can pay for our beds with food. We were in luck today, and there's enough for everyone. For my sons as well, said Hreidmar. For Fafnir and Regan, and for my daughters Lingheid and Lofnaheid. Enough for everyone said Odin airily. Then Hreidmar nodded without much enthusiasm, and Odin went to the door and called to Loki and Honir. Here we are, said Honir. And here's our supper, said Loki cheerfully. I bagged them both with one stone. When Hreidmar saw the otter draped under his nose, he stiffened. For a moment his eyes glazed, and he turned and walked out of the room. What's wrong with him, said Odin shrugged. A cool welcome is better than a cold night, he said. I'm not so sure, said Odin. No, Odin replied, you never are. Reidmar walked down the low passage, punching the turf walls, and found Fafnir and Regan. 
What do you think, he said. Your brother Otter is dead. Dead, exclaimed the brothers, leaping up. Dead. And what else do you think? His murderers are our guests for the night. Fafnir and Regan were outraged and swore to avenge Otter's death. There are three of them and three of us, said Reidmar, so we'd have to surprise them. Each of us must take one when I give the nod. One has rather a fine spear and might be better off without it, and one has strange shoes and might be better off barefoot. I see nothing harmful about the third. I'll use my magic. I'll chant spells to weaken them. I'll sing a charm to bind them. Fafner and Regan did just as their father said. The three of them leapt on to their visitors, and the farmer magician, Hreidmar, weakened their resistance so that Odin lost his spear, Gungnir, and Loki was relieved of his sky shoes. When the three gods lay on the ground, bound hand and foot, Hreidmar shouted, My son! You've killed my son! I'll kill you all for vengeance! You've killed my son! What does he mean? asked Odin. Otter was our brother, Fafnir said. The finest of fishermen, said Regan. He had the likeness of an otter by day, Fafnir said. All day he lived in the river and beside the river, and brought his prey to our father. A supply of fresh fish. Our brother. We didn't know this, said Odin. If we had, Loki would never have killed him. Dead is dead, said Hreidmar. We didn't know this, Odin said again. Do you think we'd have come straight to his father's farm? You must at least give us a chance to pay a ransom before killing us. Reidmar looked down at his three visitors and said nothing. I speak for the three of us, Odin said. We'll pay as much as you demand. Reidmar thought for a while. That would be fair, he said, if you were to keep your word. You must swear an oath, and if you break it, you will all pay with your heads. Then the three companions swore that they would raise as much as Hreidmar asked. All right, said the magician, turning to Fafnir and Regan. Where are Lynghide and Lovnhide? Have them flay Otter and bring me his skin again. Fafnir and Regan obeyed their father, and then Hreidmar laid out Otter's handsome skin beside the fire. First you must fill this with red gold, he told the gods, and then you must cover it with red gold into the bargain. It must be wholly covered. That is the ransom for the death of my son. So be it, said Odin, and he rolled over until he was close enough to Loki to whisper in his ear. Loki listened carefully, and then he said, Let me go for the gold. Let me go and hold the other two as hostages. So Hreidmar untied Loki's bonds, and with a snatch of a look and a jeering laugh that left Hreidmar and his sons and even Honir uneasy, Loki threw open the door and ran out into the night. Loki had left his sky shoes in the care of the magician, and at any rate he was in no great hurry. He knew Hreidmar had nothing to gain by killing Odin and Honir, and everything to win by waiting for his return with the red gold and he was not especially averse to the thought of mighty Odin and long-legged Honir lying for a while, bound hand and foot. He dawdled all the way across Midgard to the island of Hlesi. There, Loki visited Aegir and Ran in their hall on the seabed. The gods are in danger, he told Ran breathlessly. Odin himself lies bound. Odin and Honir, and only Ornette can save them. 
The wife of the sea god opened her cold, pale eyes very wide. Lend me your drowning net. I can use it, and not to snare men, but to save gods. When Odin had talked Ron into parting with her net, he left the hall beneath the waves quickly in case she changed her mind, and headed for the world of the dark elves. Loki picked his way down a chain of dripping tunnels and through a maze of twilight chambers until he came to a massive cavern. Its roof was supported by columns of rock thicker than tree trunks, and its corners were still and dark. A little light, however, filtered into the middle of the cavern from a vertical shaft in the roof and showed Loki what he had come to see. A large, silent pool filled with water that seemed to spring from nowhere and flow nowhere. Loki spread out Ron's finely meshed net and cast it into the pool. He dragged it and pulled it up, and there, furiously lashing and writhing, was a large pike snared in the net. Avoiding its nasty teeth and the equally nasty look in its yellow eyes, Loki took hold of it. First, he said, as he gave the pike a horrible shaking, you'll change shape. Change shape, echoed the cavern. Then there was no pike but the dwarf and Vari in Ron's dripping net. Loki disentangled him, keeping a firm hold all the while on the back of his neck. What do you want? whined Anvari. You want, said the cavern. What I want is your gold. Otherwise, I'll wring you out like a piece of washing. All your gold. All your gold, boomed the cavern. And Vari shuddered. He led Loki out of the echoing chamber and down a twisting passage into his smithy. It was hot and smoky, but well fitted out, and well stocked with gold that gleamed in the firelight. The dwarf spread out his hands and shrugged. Gather it up, said Loki, kicking a gold nugget. And Vari scrambled around, cursing and moaning. He made a pile of discs and chips and splinters and small bars of red gold, of objects already made and objects half-made. Loki looked at the stack and was well satisfied. Is that all? he said. And Vari said nothing. He stowed the gold into two old sacks and filled them both. Then grunting, he dragged them across the smithy and stood with them in front of Loki. What about that ring, said Loki, pointing at the dwarf's closed right hand. I saw you hide it. And Vari shook his head. Put it in the sack, said Loki. Let me keep it, begged Edvari. Just this ring. Put it in the sack, said Loki. Let me keep this. Just this, pleaded the dwarf. Then at least I'll be able to make more gold again. I have no need of more, said Loki, and I'm going to strip you to the bone. He stepped forward, and knocking aside one sack, forced open Advari's fists and seized the little twisted ring. It was marvelously wrought, and Loki slipped it onto his own little finger. What is not freely given must be taken by force, he said. Nothing was freely given, Advari. Loki shouldered the sacks and turned towards the door of the smithy. Take the ring, yelled the dwarf. My curse on that ring and that gold. It'll destroy whoever owns it. Loki turned round and faced Anvari. So much the better, he said. No one will enjoy with my wealth, shouted Anvari. If, said Loki, if I repeat your words to those about to get this gold, then Anvari, your curse will come to pass. And with that, Loki turned round again 
with oaths and spells in his ears, made his way out of the world of the Dark Elves and into Midgard. You took your time, said Odin. Honir said nothing. He looked rather fearful. Hard won and well won, said Loki. He dumped the sacks of red gold in front of his companions. And what do you say to this, he whispered, showing Odin the twisted finger ring which he had wrenched from Edvari. Odin blinked and marveled at its subtle beauty. Give it to me, he said. At last, said Hreidmar as he walked into the room, followed by his two sons and two daughters. He nodded, and Fafnir and Regan cut Odin and Honir free from their bonds. Slowly and stiffly the two gods stood up. They flexed their muscles, they rubbed their hands together, they looked at their chafed wrists and ankles. Well then, said Hreidmar. You must stuff the skin yourself, said Loki, or you'll never be satisfied. He emptied one sack onto the ground, and the magician stowed piece after piece inside Otter's skin. He filled it so that it was plump and taut, bursting from top to tail. And now we'll cover it completely, Loki said, opening the second sack and pouring another mound of metal over the marl floor. While Honir held Otter's skin upright, snout down, Odin and Loki heaped the gold around it. They built Otter a barrow of gold. So, said Odin, with the satisfaction of a job well done, come and look for yourself, Ragnar. We've covered the skin completely. The magician walked around and round the stack. He walked around it again. He examined the gold inch by inch. Here, he said, here's a whisker. This must be covered and hidden. Otherwise, I'll hold that you've broken your oath, and that will be the end of our understanding. Loki looked at Odin, and Odin looked at the twisted ring on his little finger. He sniffed and drew it off and placed it over the single whisker showing. Now, said Odin loudly, we've paid Otter's ransom in full. You have indeed, said Reinhardt. Still rather unsteady on his feet, Odin lurched across the room to where his spear, Gungnir, was propped up in the corner. Loki fell on his sky shoes and at once put them on. A sense of their own strength surged within them. They looked at Hreidmar and Fafnir and Regan with no great liking. Listen carefully, said Loki. That ring and all that gold was made by the dwarf Anvari. I only wrested it from him with his curse. Loki paused. And what he said, I say, what he said will hold. Loki's voice was low and compelling. Take that ring. My curse on that ring and that gold. It will destroy whoever owns it. Odin looked at Loki. His eye glittered and Loki smiled crookedly. Then Honir took one step and was at their side. The three companions stepped out of the farmhouse into the welcoming spring air. The Lay of Alvis. Alvis tramped all the way from the world of the Dark Elves to Asgard. He hurried towards Bilskirnir, and in that hall he saw the god he was looking for, but he did not recognize him. I've come for my bride, the dwarf said bluntly. It's taken long enough to get here, I must say, and now it's high time that Thrud graced her new home. Everyone will say I can't wait for my wedding night, but I don't mean to hang around here any longer than I have to. Who are you? asked Thor. 
or should I say, what are you? Why is your nose so pale? Do you sleep in a grave mound and keep corpses company? Thor considered Alvis. You look like the head of a monster. You certainly wouldn't be the one to marry Throod. The dwarf drew himself up to his full height, such as it was. I am Alvis, he said, and there is nothing I do not know. I live way down under a hill. My home is a cavern hewn out of rock. Then the dwarf testily brushed aside this talk with a sweep of his hand. I have come to claim Thrud, the greed price for my work and for many weapons. Let the gods not break their oath. I'll break it, said Thor indignantly. I knew nothing of this promise. He stalked down the hall and then called out, A father has the last word as to whom his daughter marries. It's up to him and him alone. So who are you then, hero? demanded Alvis. And what kind of right do you think you have over my radiant bride? You're nothing but some vagabond, seldom noticed, little known. The corners of Alvis's mouth twitched. Which woman had to be bought with rings before she would bear you? I, said the god very slowly, and his eyes flashed so that Alvis began to quail. I'm Thor the Hurler. I am the Wide Wanderer, and I am Odin's son. You'll never win and marry my daughter if I can help it. Ah, said Alvis, and he smiled a pallid smile. Well, I'll soon win your goodwill and your consent. I long for your snow-white daughter, and I'll struggle for her. Wise guest, said Thor. I wouldn't be able to stand in the way of your love if you can answer whatever I ask you about all the worlds. Tell me, Alvis, you're the dwarf who knows everything about our fates and fortunes. What is the name for the land that stretches all around us in each and every world? Men call it Earth, the dwarf replied. The Aesir say Field, and the Vanir say The Ways. The giants name it Evergreen, and the elves grower. The most holy gods call it clay. Tell me, Alvis. You're the dwarf who knows everything about our fates and fortunes. What is the name for the sky, child of the ocean, that we all see in each and every world? Men call it heaven, the dwarf replied. The gods say the height, and the Vanir say windweaver. The giants call it high home, and the elves' fair roof, and the dwarves' dripping hall. Tell me, Alvis, you're the dwarf who knows everything about our fates and fortunes. What is the name for the moon that we can all see in each and every world? Men call it the moon, the dwarf replied, but the gods say mock sun. It's known in hell as whirling wheel. The giants name it rapid traveler, the dwarves' gleamer, and the elves' time-teller. Tell me, Alvis, you're the dwarf who knows everything about our fates and fortunes. What is the name for the sun that we can all see in each and every world? Men call it sun, the dwarf replied. The gods say orb, and the dwarfs' dvalin's delight. 
the giants name it Everbright, the elves fair wheel, and the sons of God all glowing. Tell me, Alvis, you're the dwarf who knows everything about our fates and fortunes. What is the name for the clouds that hold the rain in each and every world? Men call them clouds, the dwarf replied. The gods say chance of showers, and the Vanir say wind kites. The giants name them hope of rain, the elves weather might, and in hell they're known as helmets of secrets. Tell me, Alvis, you're the dwarf who knows everything about our fates and fortunes. What is the name for the wind that ranges far and wide in each and every world? Men call it wind, the dwarf replied. The gods say waverer, and the most holy gods call it nayer. The giants name it whaler. The elves roaring traveler, and in hell it's known as blustering blast. Tell me, Alvis, you're the dwarf who knows everything about our fates and fortunes. What is the name for the stillness, the settling peace in each and every world? Men call it calm, the dwarf replied. The gods say the quiet, and the Vanir say winds hush. The giants name it the sultry, and the elves days lull, and the dwarfs days refuge. Tell me, Elvis, you're the dwarf who knows everything about our fates and fortunes. What is the name for the sea on which men sail in each and every world? Men call it the sea. The dwarf replied. The gods say smooth lying, and the Vanir say waves. The giants name it Eelholm. The elves drink stuff, and the dwarfs call it the deep. Tell me, Elvis, you're the dwarf who knows everything about our fates and fortunes. What is the name for fire that burns for men in each and every world? Men call it fire, the dwarf replied. The gods say flame, and the Vanir say wave. The giants name it Hungry Biter, and the dwarfs Burner. In hell it's known as the Hasty. Tell us, Alvis, you're the dwarf who knows everything about our fates and fortunes. What is the name for the wood that grows for men in each and every world? Men call it wood, the dwarf replied. The gods say main of the field, and in hell it's known as seaweed of the hills. The giants name it fuel, and the elves fair-limbed. The Vanir call it wand. Tell me, Alvis, you're the dwarf who knows everything about our fates and fortunes. What is the name for the knight, daughter of Narvi in each and every world? Men call it night, the dwarf replied. The gods say darkness, and the most holy gods say hood. The giants name it lightless, and the elves sleep soothing, and the dwarves the weaver of dreams. Tell me, Elvis, you're the dwarf who knows everything about our fates and fortunes. What is the name for the seed sown by men in each and every world? Men call it barley, the dwarf replied. The gods say grain, and the Vanir say growth. The giants name it edible. The elves drink grist, and in hell it's known as slender stem. Tell me, Elvis, 
You're the dwarf who knows everything about our fates and fortunes. What is the name for ale that men quaff in each and every world? Men call it ale, the dwarf replied. The gods say beer, and the Vanir say foaming. The giants name it cloudless swill, and in hell it's known as mead. Sotung's sons call it feast rot. Thor said, I've never known one person to be the mind of so much ancient wisdom. He smiled at his guest, a long, slow smile, and he slowly nodded his head. But your own tongue has trapped you, Alvis. The sun's rays arrest you. The dwarf whirled around, but it was already too late. The sun's rays arrest you, gloated Thor, and they turn you into stone. And now the sun shines in my hall once again. The Death of Baldur The god moaned. He twisted and writhed as he tried to escape the dark shapes. He panted and moaned again, and then he woke. For a long while, the fairest of the gods lay in the half-light, his brow gleaming as white as the whitest flower, his hair shining, and he tried to snare his dream, to name each form and dismiss it. But the shape skulked in the shadows, shapeless now that he was awake, and in time his fear lapsed into a dull foreboding. He closed his eyes and began to drift. No sooner was he asleep than his ghastly skull guests crept forward yet again, monstrous forms intent on snuffing out the light of him. He threshed and kicked. He called out, and his own shout woke him. Once more he felt fearful and exposed and doomed. When the gods and goddesses heard about Baldur's dreams, they anxiously gathered to discuss their meaning. They said that he was the most merciful, the most gentle and loved of them all, the least deserving of such unwelcome night visitors. They said nothing tainted had ever crossed the threshold of Bredeblik before. But all they said only disturbed them more. They could not unravel Baldur's dreams. I will go myself, said Allfather, Baldur's father, and return with a meaning. The magician, old as time, stood up and hurried out of the council. He saddled Slepnir, galloped over the quivering rainbow, and took the long, long track that led north from Midgard down into the gloom and the swirling mists of Niflheim. Hell's hound heard Odin coming. The hair on Garm's throat and chest was caked in blood, and he bayed from his cliff cave at the entrance to the underworld. The master of runes took no notice. He galloped so hard that the frozen ground thrummed under Slefnir's eight hooves, and he did not let up until he had reached Hell's forbidding hall. Here Odin dismounted. He peered into the hall. It was packed out with the dead, and gleaming with gold rings and gold ornaments and then led Slefnir round to the east door near which Asiris was buried. Odin stood behind her mound and fixed his one glittering eye upon it. Then he began to use his charms, and in the gloom the pale specter of the Cirrus rose out of the earth and loomed over him. Who, she moaned, is the stranger who forces me up and unearths me to sorrows? Snow has settled on me, rain has lashed me, dew has seeped through me. I have long been dead. My name is Vegtam the Wanderer, Odin said, and I am Valtam's son. Give me news of hell. 
I have traveled already through the other worlds. Why are gold rings strewn along the benches in Hell's Hall? And why is the whole place decorated with gold? Who are you expecting? The shining mead, said the seeress, is brewed for Balder. A shield covers the cauldron. For all their glory, the gods will be filled with despair. I was unwilling to speak, and I will say no more now. Cirrus, you must stay, Odin said. You must answer all that I ask. Who will slay Balder and drain the lifeblood of Odin's son? Blind Hod will carry a fatal branch. He will slay Balder and drain the lifeblood of Odin's son. I was unwilling to speak, and I will say no more now. Cirrus, you must stay, Odin said. You must answer all that I ask. Who will take vengeance on Hod? Who will carry Baldur's slayer to the pyre? Rind will lie with Odin, said the seeress, and their son will be Vali, born in Vestersalar, the western hall. He will take vengeance when he is only one night old. He will not wash his hands nor comb his hair before he has carried Baldur's slayer to the pyre. I am unwilling to speak, and I will say no more now. Cirrus, you must stay, Odin said. You must answer all that I ask. Who are the maidens who will keen then and toss their scarves up against the sky? You are not Vegtum, said the Cirrus, as I believed you to be. You are Odin, the magician, old as time. And you are no Cirrus, Odin said, nor are you wise. You are the mother of three monsters. Ride home, Odin, and boast about your skills, said the seeress. Her voice was rising and gloating. No one will raise me again until Loki breaks free from his fetters and all the forces of darkness gather before Ragnarok. The specter, pale and gleaming, began to ooze and to sink back into her grave. Then Odin turned away. He mounted Slepnir with a heavy heart. The gods and goddesses gathered in the shadow of Baldur's terrible dreams, dreams that threatened to pitch him into the darkness forever. Not one of them doubted his life was in danger, and for a long time they discussed how to protect him. The gods and goddesses thought of all the ways in which one can die. They named each earth thing, sea thing, and sky thing that can cause sudden death. Then Baldur's mother, Frigg, began to travel among the Nine Worlds and get each and every substance to swear an oath that it would not harm Baldur. Fire swore an oath. Water swore an oath. Iron and every other kind of metal swore an oath. The stones swore oaths. Nothing could stay Frigg from her mission or resist her sweet, troubled persuasion. Earth swore an oath. The trees swore oaths. Each kind of illness swore an oath. Baldur's mother was untiring and painstaking. All the animals swore an oath, and so did every sidling snake. Then the gods and goddesses met again, and Frigg satisfied them that she had done as they asked, and nothing in creation would harm Baldur. We should put it to the test, they said, and one picked up a pebble and lobbed it so that it landed right on Baldur's head. Whatever power that small stone had, it withheld it. Baldur did not even know that the pebble had struck him. I could not feel it at all, he said. Then all the gods and goddesses laughed. They left Gladsheim and streamed out into the sunlight. The hall's gold roof and gold walls were glowing, and the green plain of Edaval teemed with activity. The gods' servants coming and going, troops of light elves hurrying about their business. 
visitors to Asgard staring in wonder about them, and animals of many kinds grazing or dozing, all of them glad to be alive. The foremost gods met in Gladsheim, and the goddesses in Vingolf. They ruled over Asgard. They discussed the feats and the fates of heroic men in Midgard, and after their councils they often met together and were joined by a jostling throng, gossiping, sociable, eager for amusement. Sometimes they drank, sometimes they sang, they made trials of their strength and played games of all kinds. It was not long before the gods thought that they could check Baldur's safety again. They could not resist the sport. One tossed a pebble at him and it struck him on the cheekbone. Another aimed a stick at him and hit him on the chest. I could not feel them at all, said Baldur. Then the gods laughed and tried other tests. One thing led to another and soon they became very bold. They made Baldur stand against a wall as a target. Some threw darts with wicked points at him and the darts bounced off of him and fell at his feet. Some brought in stones and hurled them at him. The rest struck at him with axes and slashed at him with swords and the tempered metal would not scathe the Baldur. It would not even graze him. The fairest and most gentle of the gods became the butt of the most violent assaults and they did not harm him. Everyone present enjoyed this new game hugely, and they all rejoiced that it was impossible to hurt him, all except Loki. The sly one watched with distaste and impatience. Trouble and suffering were meat and drink to him, and it sickened him to see that Baldur was immune from every kind of attack. This grudge grew in him day by day and began to consume him. He refused to take part in the games, and yet he was unable to keep away. One afternoon, Loki was loafing as usual against the door of Gladsheim, watching the assembly when an idea occurred to him. He half closed his eyes, he licked his twisted lips and smiled. Unnoticed, he stepped out of the hubbub and quietly walked off in the direction of Fenselir. Loki paused. He had a careful look around. There was nobody about. Then he whispered the charm. The shape-changer turned himself into an old woman. As Loki hoped, Frigg was in her hall and alone. Loki hobbled across the floor. She sniffed, wiping her dripping nose with the back of her hand and rubbing it against her grubby dark dress. Where am I? she demanded. Frigg rose, greeted the old woman, and named herself. It's a long way from home, observed the old woman, and I'm not sure it's been worth coming. Frigg listened patiently. I passed a place some way back. What a noise! I couldn't get anyone to listen. And the people were all stoning one man. <laughs> Poor man. He had a white face, so white, shining hair. One against all, yes, I didn't know that sort of thing went on in Asgard. Frigg smiled faintly and thought it wise to wait until the old woman had had her say. I didn't stay long. I never did like stonings. Who would have thought it? So far to have come and then it's so much the same. He hadn't got long, poor man. He'll be dead by now, yes. As the old woman rambled on, it seemed she had quite forgotten she was in company. But now she shook her head fiercely and glared at Frigg. What was going on then? Do you know why they were stoning him? Frigg told the old woman that what she had seen was not a stoning, but a host of gods and goddesses sporting with her own son. She explained that Baldur had not been hurt by a single stone and was just as ready to take part as anyone else. What kind of magic is that then? asked the old woman. She had the makings of a mustache, and it was twitching in a rather disturbing way. Nothing will hurt Baldur, replied Frigg. No metal will harm him, no wood will wound him. I've taken an oath from everything. 
everything, said the old woman, even a pinch of salt, I suppose. Friggy began to feel irritated with this wearisome crone. She shrugged as if she were trying to get rid of her. Everything, the old woman sniffed. You really mean that everything has sworn you an oath that it will not injure Balder? Everything, said Frigg dismissively. Except the little bush that grows west of Valhalla, the mistletoe. That's so young, I didn't bother with it. The old woman grunted. You've given me the time of day. Yes, now I'll be getting along. Frigg inclined her head. The old woman turned and painfully made her way to the doors of Fensley, and Frigg was not in the least sorry to see her go. As soon as he was quite certain he was alone, the shape-changer muttered the magic words. Then, crowing, he resumed his old form, Loki again. Jauntily, the trickster walked across the plain of Edival, deserted now except for the animals that stood in motionless groups, as if they were waiting or had never moved. The air was thickening. The distance and middle distance were blurred and bluish. It was almost night. Loki hurried past Gladsheim. He hurried towards Valhalla and smiled to himself as he heard the Einherjar shouting. He hurried on west into the fading light, whistling and looking sharply to the left and right and under his feet. Then he entered a small grove, and there, rooted neither in earth nor water, but growing out of the trunk of an oak, the sly one found what he had come for, the spray of mistletoe. Its berries gleamed like clusters of pale eyes. Its leaves were green and yellow-green. Its stem and small branches and twigs were green. Unmoving and unworldly it seemed in broad daylight, and even more strange now in the half-light. Loki grabbed at the little bush and wrenched at it until it came away from the oak. Then he left the grove and took the path to Gladsheim, picking at the spray as he hurried along. He chose the straightest branch, almost as long as his forearm, and stripped it down, leaving a small trail of droppings behind him. Loki sharpened one end of it. He stropped it against his belt and stepped into the warm light of the hall. The gathering in Gladsheim was so caught up in the game they were playing that no one was aware Loki had gone, and no one noticed he had come back again. The sly one looked around. He smiled when he saw that Frigg had joined the company. His lips tightened and his eyes narrowed as he watched blind Hod, Baldur's brother, standing a little aside as usual, pathetic in his slow, fumbling movements. And when Loki saw that many of the gods were once again hurling darts at long-suffering Baldur, he doubled up. For a moment his whole body was convulsed as if in laughter or terrible pain. A servant hurried up and offered Loki wine. Loki drained the cup at one draught and then sauntered across the spacious hall behind the semicircle of gods and their followers. He sidled up to Hod and poked him in the ribs. That can only be Loki, said Hod. None other, said a voice in his ear. Well, said Hod, why don't you join in? Why aren't you throwing darts at your brother? Because I can't see where he is, said Hod. Loki sucked at his cheeks. Another thing, said Hod, I have no weapon. This is not how it should be, said Loki with measured indignation. They do wrong to ignore you and you, his brother. Hod's expression did not alter. He had long since learned to accept his fate. Nothing comes, he said, of rankling resentment. Hod's words were drowned in a roar of laughter. What was that? he asked. Only more of the same, said Loki. A dart well aimed, but now it's your turn, Hod. You should pay your respects to Balder, like everybody else. I have no weapon, Hod repeated. 
Take this twig, then, said Loki, and he put the sharpened mistletoe between Hod's hands. I'll show you where he's standing. I'll stand behind you and guide your hand. Loki's eyes were on fire now. His whole body was on fire. His face was ravaged by wolfish evil and hunger. Hod grasped the mistletoe and lifted his right arm. Guided by Loki, he aimed the dart at his brother Balder. The mistletoe threw through the hall and it struck Balder. It pierced him and passed right through him. The god fell on his face. He was dead. There was no sound in Gladsheim. No sound. Only the roaring of silence. The gods could not speak. They looked at the fairest and most wise of them all, shining and lifeless, and they could not even move from where they stood to lift him. The gods stared at each other, and then they turned to stare at Hold and Loki. They had no doubt. They were all of one mind about who had caused Baldur's death, and yet none of them were able to take vengeance. The ground of Gladsheim was hallowed, and no one was ready to shed blood in the sanctuary. Hod could not see the fearsome gaze of that gathering. Loki could not withstand it. He loped towards the doors of Gladsheim and slunk away into the darkness. Then the terrible silence was broken. One goddess began to weep, seized by wild grief and the weeping of one unlocked the floodgates of them all. When they tried to speak, they found they could not tell their grief, and their words were choked with tears. Odin himself was there, and of all the gods and goddesses, he was the most deeply afflicted. He best understood that this was the greatest evil ever sustained by gods and men, and foresaw what loss and sorrow would follow in the wake of his son's death. Frigg was the first to speak. Does anyone, she asked, does anyone here want to win all my love and favor? The mourning company turned to face her. Is there anyone here who will ride the long road to hell and try to find Balder? Then the goddesses buried their faces in their hands and sobbed again. Is there anyone here, said Frigg, her voice rising, who will offer hell a ransom? Offer her a ransom if she'll allow my son Balder to come home to Asgard again. Then Hermod stepped forward. Odin's son, whom everyone admired for his boldness. I will, he said. I am ready to go. Gladsheim began to breathe and sound again. Odin gave servants orders. They hurried out of the hall and soon returned with Sleipnir, Odin's own horse. Allfather took the reins and handed them to Hermod. Then, in Gladsheim, Hermod mounted Sleipnir. He looked down at the upturned faces of the gods and goddesses and at the fair fallen body of Balder. He raised his hand and spurred the steed. Sleipnir's hooves clattered against the marble floor. Hermod galloped out into the darkness and on towards the endless night. The gods and goddesses did not sleep. They kept a silent vigil in Gladsheim. Ranged around Baldur's body, so white that it was gleaming, each of them was prey to his own thoughts and hopes and fears. What chance Hermod had of bringing Baldur back from the dead? How to avenge Baldur's death on his own unhappy brother Hod? What kind of punishment would begin to suffice for Loki? And what meaning the death of one must have for them all? Day began to dawn. A lightning in the east at first mysterious, then quickly gathering speed and spreading in every direction. Then with aching hearts, four of the gods lifted Baldur's body onto their shoulders, and the others formed a long cortege. They carried him down to the sea, and laid his corpse near Ringhorn, his own great boat with its curved prow. The gods wanted to build Baldur's pyre in the waist of the boat, up against the mast. 
They took hold of the stern and tried to launch the boat, but their grief had so exhausted them that they could not summon up the strength to shift it on its rollers. Then the gods sent a messenger speeding to Jotunheim to ask for the help of the giantess Hurricane. A great crowd out of Asgard sat near the water watching the pulse of the waves. They were pensive and subdued, none of them so strong that he could escape the flux of his own feelings and comfort the others. In a while, Hirokin came. She was huge and grim, riding a wolf with the vipers for reins. As soon as she leapt off her steed, Odin summoned four berserks and told them to watch over the wolf and the vipers, and ensured they caused no harm. The very sight of the four men and their animal skins angered the wolf. Its eyes flickered and it snarled. The berserks seized the viper reins, but they were unable to hold the wolf fast. First it dragged them one way, then another, slithering helplessly through the sand as it tried to break free. Then the berserks became as mad as wolves themselves, and in fury they rained blows upon the wolf with their club-like fists. They struck it down and left it for dead in the sand. Hurricane, meanwhile, stalked up to Ringhorn. She looked at the boat, so large and yet so sweeping and graceful, and gripped the prow. Then she dug in her heels, and with a horrible grunt she pulled, pulled so hard that Ringhorn raced, screaming down the rollers, and crashed into the water. The pine rollers burst into flames, and the nine worlds trembled. "'Enough!' shouted Thor. His fingers closed round his hammer, and he felt his old strength surging back into him. Hirokin looked at Thor scornfully. "'Enough!' repeated Thor. "'I'll teach you respect!' But Odin and several other gods hurried to Thor's side and restrained him. They took his arm and reminded him, She is here at our bidding. Oh, crack her skull, muttered Thor. It would be wrong to injure her, said the gods. Leave her, ignore her. And slowly Thor's volcanic anger subsided inside him. He kicked at the sand, causing a sandstorm, and walked up and down. Then the four gods who had carried Baldur's body down to the sea gently raised it again and waded out to Ringhorn, rocking on the water. They set down his spotless body on a high bench, covered in crimson cloth. Baldur's wife, Nana, was watching, and when she saw Baldur lying there lifeless, her body shook. She could not control it. She was tearless, in too much pain for tears now. Then Nana's heart broke. The daughter of Nep died there and she was carried out to Ringhorn and laid beside her dead husband. The cortege had swollen to a vast gathering. Odin was there, his ravens, thought and memory, perched on his shoulders. Frigg accompanied him, and so did the Valkyries, Shaker and Mist, Axe Time and Raging, Warrior and Might, Shrieking, Host Fetter and Screaming, Shield Bearer, Spear Bearer, Wrecker of Plans, all those wonderful maidens, Choosers of the slain stood grouped around the father of battle. Friar had come to the cremation in his chariot drawn by Gulen Bursti, the gold-bristled boar fashioned for him by the dwarves Brock and Atri. Heimdall had written out of Asgard on his mount Goldtuft, and Freya sat in her chariot drawn by cats. The elves were there, the dwarves were there, and hundreds of frost giants and stone giants stood there too a great gang who had followed Hurricane out of Jotunheim. That was a vast concourse, a mingling of mourners and the merely curious on the foreshore, scuffing the strip of sand that never wholly belongs to earth or to sea. The seabirds rose and wheeled and dipped, screaming. The sea sobbed, 
and everyone there watched the ritual on Ringhorn. A pyre was built round the body of Balder and his wife Nana, dry faggots that needed nothing more than a spark to leap into their own life and consume the lifeless bodies that lay upon them, releasing their spirits to travel on. Then many treasures were laid within Ringhorn. Buckles and brooches and rings, clasps and pins. And not only treasures, but knives and buckets and scissors and spindles and spades and all of the fabric of life. Baldur's horse, meanwhile, was galloped along the foreshore and worked into a steaming sweat. Then a servant plunged a short dagger into its throat. It gave a violent jerk and without a sound crumpled amongst the rack. No sooner was it dead than its body was hacked up and the pieces were thrown into Ringhorn. Now Odin strode among the shallows and gripped the gunwale. He climbed into the boat and stood over the body of his dead son. For some time he gazed at him. Slowly he took off his arm ring, Draupnir, the gold ring that dropped eight rings of equal value on every ninth night, and slipped it onto Baldur's arm. Then Odin bent down and put his mouth to Baldur's ear. Again he gazed at his son, and then he left Ringhorn. At a sign from Odin, a servant stepped forward with a lighted brand. He set fire to the pyre, and at once a steady plume of smoke, twisting and spiraling, rose into the calm air. Thor raised his hammer. Slowly and solemnly he intoned the magic words to hallow the cremation. Then a dwarf called Lit, who had lost all interest in the proceedings, came running along the water's edge. He passed right in front of Thor, and Thor was so enraged that he put out a foot and tripped him. Before Lit had time to pick himself up, Thor gave him a terrible kick. The dwarf flew through the air and landed right on the licking and curdling pyre. In this way, he was burned to death beside Baldur. The painter was released, and with it the pent emotions of the mourners. They wept as the boat began to drift out, rocking across the water. They wept and they talked about Baldur, the most beautiful, the most gentle, the most wise of them all. Ringhorn rode across the water. Sea winds caught at her and tugged her away. First she was more boat than flame, but soon more flame than boat. She was a quivering shape, a farewell on the horizon, moving on under a great cloud of her own making. For nine nights, Hermod rode through a valley so deep and dark that he was unable to see anything. The ground fell away from him and the cold fingers of the underworld began to reach towards him and search him. The god crossed many rivers, all of which spring from the seething cauldron of Fergomir, cool Svol, and defiant Guntra. Fjorm and bubbling Fimbothul, fearsome Slid and storming Hrid, Silg, Ilg, broad Vid and Leapt, which streaked past like lightning. At last Hermod came to the icy river Gjol, a swirling torrent of water. Slefnir needed no spurring. He galloped across the bridge there. It was thatched with strips of gold. On the far side, Hermod was stopped by the maiden Modgud, warden of the bridge. She raised one pale arm, and it gleamed with an unearthly power. Before you go further, she said, tell me your name and your lineage. Hermod kept quiet. Five troops of dead men came this way yesterday, said Modgud. They rode over this bridge, but you make as much noise as they all made together. Still Hermod said nothing. I can't say you look like a man who has died, said Modgud. Who are you? I am Hermod, and I am Odin's son. I must ride to hell in search of my brother, dead Baldur. 
Have you seen him yourself on his way there? He has crossed the river, Lord Good replied. He rode over this bridge, but the way to hell is no short way. Far as you have come, it is still a little further northward and downward. Herman thanked Modgood, and she stepped aside. Then Slefnir saw the way before him. Horse and rider galloped onward. So at last Herman came to the massive gates and towering walls that Hel had set up in front of her hall, Eljundir. Slefnir stopped in his tracks and whinnied. Herman dismounted and looked around in the dismal light. The gates were locked. Impassable, it seemed, for all those not fated to pass beyond on their way to dreadful Nastrond, the shore of corpses. Hermod tightened his stirrups. He swung himself into the saddle and spurred Slefnir fiercely. Odin's steed galloped at the gates. For a moment he seemed to pause, then he gave a great thrust with his back legs and leapt clear of the iron gates. Hermod boldly took Slefnir right up to Elyudnir's doors. There he dismounted once more and walked straight into the cavernous hall. Faces without number turned towards him. The faces of the newly dead. Faces green and rotting. Faces less flesh than bone. Faces pitiful, unanswered, resigned. Many scowling or leering or treacherous or murderous and in agony, all of them with eyes only for Hermod. But Hermod saw only the fair figure sitting in the high seat his brother Balder. For Balder's sake and the sake of the gods, resolute Hermod stayed all night in the hall. He sat by the door and kept his own counsel, silent in the company of the dead who could not speak unless he spoke to them. He waited for hell to rise from sickbed and draw back its hangings, glimmering misfortune. Hell's face and body were those of a living woman, but her thighs and legs were those of a corpse mottled and moldering. She crept towards the god, looking gloomy and grim. Hermod greeted Hel and told her of the grief of the gods. He said all Asgard was caught in a tearfall and a storm of sorrow. He wove his words with care and love, and asked Hel if she would agree to let Balder ride home with him. Hel thought for a while, and her expression did not change. I'm not so sure that Balder is as much loved as people say. She waited for Hermod to reply, and Hermod said nothing. However, said Hel, it can be put to the test. She spoke as slowly as Ganglati and Ganglot, her aged servants, moved. So slowly that her words were only like punctuations between her silences. If everything in the nine worlds, dead and alive, weeps for Balder, let him return to Asgard. But if anything demurs... If even one thing will not weep, Balder must remain in Niflheim. And with those words, Hel slowly turned away from Hermod. Then Balder stood up, and Nanna rose from the shades and stood beside him. They walked the length of the hall. They passed between the benches of corpses, and Balder's face was white and shining. Balder and Nanna came up to Hermod and greeted him, and led him out of Eljudnir. Then Balder took off the armoring Draupnir, that Odin had fixed on him when he was lying lifeless on Ringhorn, and he put it into Hermod's hands. He said, Give this to my father in remembrance of me. And Nana offered Hermod linen for a headdress and other gifts. These are for Frigg, she said, and this is for Fula. She handed Hermod a gold ring. Hermod took leave of Balder and Nana. He mounted Slefnir and rode without rest until he reached Asgard. And there in Gladsheim he told the gods and goddesses all he had seen, and all that had been said to him.
the Aesir sent out messengers to every corner of the nine worlds, and all they asked was that dead Baldur should be wept out of hell. As each substance had sworn an oath before that it would not harm Baldur, each substance now wept. Fire wept. Iron and every other metal wept. The stones wept. Earth wept. The trees wept. Every kind of illness wept. All the animals wept. All the birds wept. Every kind of poisonous plant wept. And so did every sidling snake. Just as these things weep when they are covered with rime and begin to thaw again. The gods' messengers were making their way back to Asgard, and they all felt they had overlooked nothing. Then they came across a giantess sitting in a cave. "'What is your name?' asked one. "'Thok,' said the giantess. Then the messengers explained their mission and asked Thok to weep as all things had wept, weep and weep Baldur out of hell. The giantess glowered at the messengers, and then she answered sourly, "'Thok will weep dry tears over Baldur's funeral.' I never cared for the old man's son, alive or dead. I have no use for him. Let hell hold what she has. Despite the messenger's prayers and entreaties, Thok refused to say another word. She would not recant. She would not weep. Then the messengers left her. They mournfully crossed Bifrost. And what they had to say was clear from the manner of their coming. The gods and goddesses ached. They felt old and confused, and unable and weary. And not one of them doubted that Thok, the giantess in the cave, was also Loki.